when you're working in VFX, the shots start coming back just before final completion. In Mortal Kombat, we had, there was one character called Goro. It's got four arms. They literally had two stunt guys, one on top of each other, sort of going like this. Then you, the grayscale comes in and then the textures come in and it's just when you finally get it all put together, it's really a lovely moment. The views, information and opinions expressed in this podcast and this YouTube channel are solely the views of the individuals involved. It does not reflect the views of their organizations, employers and employees past, present and future. Like this show? Then rate it 5 stars and subscribe to us on YouTube, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Uncool is a podcast by creatives at work. It is produced, written and hosted by Sean Lee Wincheong and co-hosted by Yenling Lo, co-produced by Raven Lim and edited by Ray Ung. Uncool. It's cool to be uncool. Let me do a quick introduction. Check out this credit list. Mortal Kombat, Peter Rabbit 2, Alien Covenant, Great Gatsby. The list goes on. You, you just check it out on IMDb, man. <laughs> I've, I've, been, I've been really lucky, yeah. Even the coolest people have most embarrassing stories to tell. Daniel, I think we'd be quite interested to know exactly what did you do on the, you know, uh, in, in your roles as you know, VFX editor and, uh, and assistant director on these projects. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a funny term. So um, on a lot of these projects, I kind of run a dual role uh, depending on how big and or small the project is so I started sort of working as an assistant editor which is really supporting editorial um, where you're handling rushes you're doing syncing you're helping with playouts um, there's a that's probably the very basic building blocks of what the job in details and there's there's other things like um, helping out the editor um, sometimes they'll ask you in to sort of like look at cuts and just sort of run a second set of eyes over things. And then in the last couple of years, uh, I've moved more towards the visual effects side. So it's always been around, but it's only now that with uh, software and, and budgets expanding and things becoming much more accessible that a lot of shows are starting to incorporate visual effects, even down uh, to the level where the budgets may not be super big. Like it's very difficult to find a television show in Australia these days that will not have some component of visual effects. And so what I do as the visual effects editor, we're responsible for um, basically collating and, and managing um, the amount of shots and providing the vendors with all the material and making sure that that is all tracked. We're responsible for other things like um, bash comping. Bash comping is, is kind of where... Um, they have a green screen and so we're going to do like a, a composite, um, and a very simple composite, like mostly we try to do it within the editing software with the tools available. But if you wish to sort of go a high level, you can uh, what we call break it out of the chain and bring it into another external program like After Effects or something. But generally we try, I, I personally like to try and achieve it within the editing software that we use called Avid uh, because it just makes it a little bit easier to unpack when we're turning this over, which means preparing it for the vendors uh, to know exactly what went into creating that bash comp so that we're not missing any elements, um, clean plates, etc., things like that. Oh, it sounds like super technical. <laughs> no, no, it's not. It's, not. <laughs> it, it's actually, it actually sounds... It actually sounds very, very niche. Yes, it is. And, yeah. it's also, and it can be very unfamiliar to some, to some of our listeners, and especially because not every production has the you know has a 
VFX editor. Yes, yeah. Yeah. as a VFX editor, uh, what is your typical day like? Uh, especially on these big produ- productions like you know Mortal Kombat and and Interceptor. And well, it really depends on at what stage you're brought in to production, and every single production is is pretty different. If you're lucky and on a production that can afford your services uh, to start earlier, I, I think there's always a benefit to it, uh, have people on from as soon as possible in any production. This includes things like, you know, the composer or uh, the VFX team or post-supervisors, et cetera. The more earlier you can bring them on in the conveyor belt, um, the smoother it will run towards the end of the production. So where I've been able to start um, during the shoot, my day will normally consist of um, tracking the visual effects components that come in because um, if it's a very VFX-heavy film, uh, they will shoot specific things that may not necessarily make it on screen but are very significant components of being able to complete the shot. And those things include, um, you know, like a clean plate because there's wire removals or uh, plates from another scene that are going to fit into the green screen background and they may be from two different locations. And so my job will be uh, collating all of that so that later when they're looking for things that are going to fit the angle that's been chosen, um, I'm able to bring that up at speed um, and uh, make sure that everything sort of matches. You're looking for changes. Um, and also uh, when, you, when you do watch the rushes, you are monitoring for things that might be useful later as well. They may not have been necessarily specifically shot, but you go, oh, I, I could use that. So let's make sure that we have that as reference somewhere. So a lot of it is uh, what I call sort of like tagging and bagging. And it really is quite varied because I won't say it's a new kind of role because it it has been around a while. But I think within, say, the last 15 years, it has really kind of exploded in a way. And I I was very, very fortunate to kind of get in a little bit early in terms of on the Australian scene. So that, that was pretty lucky for me. So let's unpack that a little bit, right? Because you went from, like, how did you even get into this role i don't really know where to where to start like where 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 to start from when i decided to go for it i was working in um uh, the hospital in singapore at um uh kadankabal and i wanted to do a couple of things as a um as an expat to sort of get to know the local area like either play an instrument um join a sport or or just do a hobby and so I applied at the, at the time, and this was a long, long time ago when they had TCS up on Caldecott Hill, um, they, they, they did some uh, open auditions. And so I went to these auditions and that eventually led to me uh, doing support cast work um, on Singapore uh, TV shows and, and stuff. And that's where I got interested. So I thought I'd make the... Um, the, the jump and I came back to Australia and applied for certain schools. I'm not too sure if that if I've answered that quite right. It really depends on how far back you kind of want to go. When did you come here, by the way? I came uh, in 1997. So I just, I finished uni. I'd done um, my honours down in my home state of Tasmania, which is a small state in Australia. And uh, I really wanted to use my degree. And because I come from a small place, I thought um, cities like Melbourne and Sydney were quite foreign to me and I, I was a little bit 
scared, to be honest. So I thought, look, if I'm going to move for work, I, I might as well just move country. So let's make it worth the while. So um, we had a couple of Singaporean students um, in the course that I did. My uh, uni course was biomedical science. And I contacted them and um, they said, look, you're in luck. We are hiring. Um, so come on over and talk to our boss. I used to work at um, KK Hospital. I was in the um, microbiology department, which I love. I love microbiology. So I was dealing specifically with bacteria. It's not the most glamorous of um, roles because you're dealing with a lot of, uh, shall we say, bodily fluids, uh, <laughs> testing and, and, and stuff like that. I look back extremely fondly of my time in Singapore and hopefully not through a romanticized lens, but from a practical lens. And, you know, like there's a lot of stuff that happened to me in Singapore, which was part of forming who I am today. Cause it was a good, it was a good part of my twenties basically. Wow. Wow. Okay. That, that's just a huge journey that you went on biomedical <laughs> yeah. science, right? Yeah. Yeah. So- it's pretty crazy. If you, if I really recommend if you if you want to get into the film industry, not to do start with a biomedical science degree. It probably takes you a bit longer. <laughs> but in saying in saying that, I I still love the science. I really do. At the time that I made the switch, it was a matter of I enjoyed the science, but I was also starting to get an interest in the creative arts, and it was a matter of I like both, but I feel more passionate about one. So why not? I can talk underwater with a meat pie in my mouth like like the, the right the right topics i can i can go on all day and it's to be honest like it's really lovely to connect with the singapore side again i, I tell you like the the number one without a doubt is the supper culture in singapore i miss it i miss it so much in australia we don't have supper culture i miss the fact that uh well back in the day when i used to go to duck club you know you you go to zook and then like one or two in the morning, you're eating and then you get the phone calls start coming. Hey, hey, where are you? Where are you? Okay, okay, we're down here. We're being cool. Okay, come, come. We're, we're, you yeah, know, yeah, let yeah, pa- yeah. Let, let pack in with the kakis, you know. And the kaki culture, having your friends just come and join the table and it doesn't matter, you know. It's like, oh, yeah, we'll, see. we'll be in a cab and we'll see you soon. I miss that. I, it's the single most important thing I feel is missing in my life right now. That supper and kaki culture really goes a long way in defining your society. I, I miss that about Singapore a lot. I love the fact that I could just take off and I've done it. Like I get a phone call from a friend at one in the morning. I got on my motorcycle. I got my motorcycle license at SSDC, Amokio. I was local, man. And that was the, one of the best things I did was that I, I was able, the motorcycle opened up Singapore to me. And particularly when we were doing things like shooting in different locations, uh, I was able to get on the bike and just go and also friends. So that was one of the biggest and best things that I really enjoyed about Singapore was just being able to, one, be able to sort of travel across the island, two, meet up with people at certain eating places single-handedly. And this is probably across Asia as well. The supper culture and the fact that friends will come around at 1 a.m. and then my cousin will just sort of like break out the air fryer and put in the, the salted pork or, or someone will go get some hot food and bring it back and then they will, you know, like like makan around the table and just relax and, of course, yeah, drinks yeah. because, oh, my goodness. And I, I think that's the biggest sort of like the most lovely cohesive sort of uh, act 
that you can have in Singapore. It, it is a real credit to both the country and the culture in Asia. I miss it incredibly. I cannot understate that enough or can't overstate that enough. I miss that a lot, <laughs> too much. And you all know it. You know it as Singaporeans. You're all talking about the memories that like, um, uh, you know, was it, was it S11 or S22? What was uh, the see, one year? Oh, S11. Yeah, yeah, S11, right? S11, yes. No, where, <laughs> was the one S11. Near the, where was the one near the fat frog? Which I think the substation's no more, right? I tell you what, I, I tell you what, it's a trivia story. When I came back to Singapore one time, because I used to work at um, KK Hospital, uh, sometimes for lunch we catch the bus up to uh, Newton Circus. And I went back years later and then I, I saw this guy, right? And I used to eat the soup kambing. I, I used to love uh -huh. the soup. It's, it's a, like heart attack in a bowl. So yes. I, I went to go and I saw this guy and I said, you look very familiar. And he said, and he, he remembered me and years wow. after me being there and he was saying, and it was hard for me to place the stall because they had refurbished and sort of like done new buildings and stuff. And he said, oh yeah, I remember you. You walked down the road and I was like, hey, how are you? And he told me, yeah, my father passed away. So we were able to sort of like reconnect. And, and I, I tell you what though, I miss, I miss the Singapore food a lot. My goodness. My goodness. Come back, come back. Come I know. Back and like the first, in, in fact, like it's been a tradition every time I come to Singapore, I go straight from the airport to go eat cheese prata. Like I don't even go unpack. It's like, no, no, no. We, we, we go, we're going to the store and we're going to eat straight away. I have to. I have to. I do miss, I, I do miss my time in Singapore a lot, actually. It's, it's, it's um, rewarded with, uh, it's rewarded me with sort of like what I have today and also friendships that are last till today like um you know, i've met up with um keegan a couple of times he's been back in australia at certain times um other visiting singaporeans sort of like um come down and then when i go back obviously you know there's a lot of people in, in fact it's not like a holiday when i go back because i, I literally have to try and um uh catch Schedule up with anyone all of these meetings <laughs> and and or, or what, what happened i think last time i was there sean was part of this story i I had I was flying out to New York and uh, out of Singapore, and somehow I completely and utterly screwed up the dates. And I happened to be trying to check in 48 hours early, going, "Oh, this is great! I'll just check in and forget about it." And then I realized my flight was in three hours. I, I totally messed it up, and I put on Facebook. I was just like, "Oh, can anyone help me?" And Sean was kind enough to actually come and pick me up and take me to the airport. I was such an idiot. Oh, and I nice. almost missed my flight. <laughs> almost missed my flight. I got there though. I got there in the end. Oh, Sean, you're the lifesaver. <laughs> <laughs> Feel like I've kind of made friends for life um, after the experience. It was, it was a really, really fun experience, to be honest. And that sowed the seeds of really sort of me, kind of pushing me over the edge in terms of what I wanted to do, where I felt I wanted to go. Um, I was always always sort of like quite drawn to the creative industries, um, even though I come from a scientific background. Uh, I like, yeah, yeah, yeah. like to straddle both. Talk us through that transition then. So after that, something was sparked after doing something exactly. like a hobby, right? You were in yeah. front of the camera. So why did you go back in the first place? You know, you went back to Australia, right? Yeah, I, I went back specifically to pursue getting into the film and television industry. I felt at that stage that my best part, uh, my best, let's say, sort of like 
support that I could receive in trying to achieve that would be in Australia. Because in Australia, we have a lot of, um, there's a lot of sort of government help in terms of uh, studying, etc. You can receive allowance. Uh, also, I would not be paying, say, international fees because I had considered uh, trying to apply to Singapore, but then as a foreigner, I would be subject to fees, which I probably could not afford. Um, whereas in Australia, my fees were literally negligible or they get there is a, a sort of like a pay later system as well if you do it through a university. So that formed a big part of me going back. One, the support. Two, I felt um, the quality uh, of education would be quite good um, depending on the school. There are a couple of schools in Australia which have quite a good reputation and have some very um, serious alumni that have come out of there. So at the end of my contract, so I was in Singapore, well, I was at the hospital for about four years. I uh, I decided to, to I, I really wanted to make a go of it. So I said I wouldn't wasn't going to renew. Um, I went on holiday and on that holiday to Europe, I started applying for schools in Australia. Uh, unfortunately, I didn't get into the schools that I applied for. So I went back to my home state and found that they had a small TAFE. TAFE in Australia is a, kind of like a vocational college, if you will. Um, and so the fees were, were very cheap and I started off with that. Uh, and then I did that for a year and then I just I literally started applying, not even applying for jobs. I just started blasting companies. There's uh, a particular directory in Australia that has a listing of people that choose to have their production company in there. Um, and I, I approached it like a military operation. I was like, right, where does stuff get made in Australia? Okay, Sydney, Sydney looks good. And then like, what are the production houses in Sydney? I had no idea what they did. I had no idea what I was doing. I had my Excel spreadsheet of whom I had written to, whether or not I'd got a response. And I was just so lucky that one of the guys asked me up for an interview in Sydney. And it was, uh, I had to approach that with a, a bit of tactic for the interview because I was older. And at the time, I'm applying for a junior avid editor position at the age of like 32, 33. Now that's pretty late. To be starting, and your experience prior to that, your experience prior to that was, of course, media corp acting <laughs> and totally checking, unrelated, and, and studying, and you know, and studying bacteria, studying bacteria in the lab, and exactly. So that's why I I approached it with um, my approach was to think forward and say, right, what are the things that my this potential employer is going to be looking at that would essentially erase me from the job, my age. Um, my background, uh, education. And so I, I would come up with answers for all of that and was just brutally honest as well. And I said, listen, I gave up a career to apply for your job, uh, which means that if you hire me, I want to do this. I'm not some young punk coming out of school that has got a, the eye out the, out the window looking for another job. And I believe that that resonated with him when I was, you know, very honest. And I said things like, listen, I don't know everything, but if you point me in the direction, I'll know it in five minutes. You know, I will find it. I will find an answer. So in the end, he did hire me and I was I'm forever grateful for that guy. And he actually told me, I don't know whether it's a um, compliment or insult, but he said, you weren't the best qualified, but I like your attitude. So, and then here we are today.
Well, I would have to say, like, now that we're looking for people for other projects as well, that's entirely, like, a full-on compliment. Because that's the <laughs> hardest thing that you can find in any in, in any candidate that you, you are searching for, right? I'm thinking about attitude in general is, is everything, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, I would say- 100%. You know what? I've never known, I was just saying this to my wife today, I've never known an industry where there is an entire other industry about getting into the industry. There are film schools, there's <laughs> acting courses, there's, you know what I mean? It's weird, right? That's true. It's weird. That's, true. It's a, it's, yeah. that's the industry amongst it on its own. Even like, you know, if I come over and, and talk to you, like, man, what you see is what you get. Like, I'm pretty, I'm pretty honest. Like, I, I don't, I abhor bull- a lot of the people in the film industry here also hate bull****. Like, you know, like, and again, the attitude, like you don't want to get some self-entitled film school student. Not that there's anything wrong with film school. It's fine. But you don't want to get someone feeling self-entitled going, well, I did this, so now you owe me this. It's like, no, no, no. You, no, <laughs> you, you, here's where the real deal is. A lot of people are like, well, I've got this. And I know in Singapore as well, it's really, there's so much emphasis placed upon the fact that you have a certain qualification. And I think it came up in Singapore news recently. Some, someone was saying like, you know, if um, Thelonious Monk or, or whatever musician was asked to lecture, they couldn't do it because they don't have a PhD, but they've got the life experience. They've got the yeah, experience. So where does, where does industry um, experience count in terms of like the person that's got like a, a, a master's in it. Like, okay, then you're almost like learning for the sake of learning. Whereas I feel lucky enough to have come up through like, learning on the job. And that, like, I think we're in one of the last, not last, I wouldn't say that, but we're in one of the industries where we can say like learning on the job is so important. And you guys know it. You guys know it. Like, yes, it is, it is good to go to school, but it is. Um, it has to be backed up with practical application of that knowledge. Yeah, the actual experience. Of I, it, I, right? I, I know. Yes, I mean not to say that film school, acting school is not important. I think that it has its value. But you're absolutely right. I think that because there is a whole industry about getting the industry, and, and and but the reverse is not true, right? If those people in the school and in, in like what we were saying, those people in the, to to school in film and so on are not able to do what you did as far you know in in microbiology and so on and. and then, but you know, but but it worked for you to come in. I still, I have to come back to attitude. Actually, I, I think, and this is only in my experience. Other people will, will definitely sort of like have a different lens on it, but I think attitude is key because even when I've been trying to uh, hire staff or look for staff, I feel like you can't teach somebody that doesn't want to learn, and a lot, a lot of the work it can be learned, and we understand that, and we've all been there, and it just takes the right attitude to someone who's who's very keen and i think it's hugely underrated how far how important attitude is i often tell people i don't feel that i'm the most technically proficient person uh you know even before we started recording i'm talking about headphones and, and stuff i couldn't get you know but uh I'm not a dick. If you had a great attitude, you can work 14 hours a day with a smile on your face day in and day out. At the end of the 14-hour days, do remain civilized and, and treat people well. I think that's the key. But it's easier said than done, right? Because, you know, you see, I've seen people that are talented. They are incredibly nice. Uh, but 
after and you know you they all great you know they all great and, and great relationships and all that but then at the end you know they, it just falls flat on your face because you know of grumpiness because of grumpiness so i think besides attitude daniel what what does you think it's also very important uh you know to to, to keep going in this industry uh for as long as you have if i had to give any advice to people in the industry just don't be a dick no one likes it the reason for that is very simple when you're working as as you guys know very long hours there is a lot of and also a lot of pressure you're going to have moments where you have to be able to know that the person in the room next to you or in the chair next to you has got your back and can handle the fact that maybe you'll blow up and have a swear and but they it's not personal it's uh you know it's just a little bit of a vent and you can psychologically get through it together you do not want to be spending 6 months to 12 months to 18 months with someone you cannot stand you really oh yes yeah. it's like pure torture and, and i want to, and i just want to confirm like this is not about being fake okay because people can can pick that particularly like um you know we work in post and editing so you know, we, we're looking at performance all day like we're looking at stuff whether whether it's real to you and so like yeah if if you um if if you're very fake about it, you know people can see through that as well. So if you get a good vibe of someone, that's really important, and it's really important because to be able to, I'm not going to say uh, you off, you don't want to be so compliant that you take abuse, but you want to be able to be generous enough to know that okay, maybe someone's having a bad day, and uh, take that on your shoulders as well. Um, the way I like to look at it is that. Listen, we're all brothers and sisters. We're all, and sometimes a family can fight, but at the end of the day, we're still family. So that's very important. On that note of you know, you you a lot of your point of you know spending time with people and so on. A lot of your projects, you edit the same show for you know a year or more, right? And I think plus you got the luxury of time on these high-profile projects. And I think a lot of people picture new editors and well and well directors as well especially those working in Hollywood feature films to be sitting in air-conditioned rooms, yeah. having coffee and croissants all day, you know, or yeah. having coffee, maybe, maybe, yeah, or, or maybe, maybe beer, yeah. beer and gin, if the day goes the other way around. But is that really the experience then, you know, no. uh, working at this Hollywood production? No, absolutely not. Let, that's not to say there aren't nice moments and they, they do, uh, there are times where they do try to make it comfortable, but it's a lot of it's a lot of grinding, I notice. And to be honest, I do not know how directors do it sometimes because their time is literally just go, 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 go from the from the moment they wake up to the morning, there's always a decision to be made. I mean, Sean, I know you probably know this personally. Like, there's always something. So it's it's not. Um, it, it's quite funny. There always seems to be a perception sometimes of what um, working on a major motion picture or a film is like. Um, you know, there's the image of the director in the leather jacket and a beret and a briefcase or whatever. And I, I I can tell you that's definitely not the case. Some of the biggest people I've worked with, you know, sort of like dressed very casually in fleece sweaters, sneakers, because you, you are in the room all the time and you have to be comfortable. I mean, the only person I can say is probably, you know, Baz. Baz is super fashionable. He's, he's always on in that sense. He's all, I, I, I don't think he sort of leaves, 
the house without uh, looking it's pretty a good. He's, he's, sour, right? yeah, he's very, he he's it. very stylish. <laughs> I have to admit, and as as is his partner, um, CM Catherine Martin. She's um, she's impeccable. You know, they're both they're both very lovely. So Daniel, has you have opened up this conversation topic because you you worked on Great Gatsby. Yes, yeah. So what did you do? What did you do on Great Gatsby? And what was it like to edit with or for somebody like Bass Lemon? Well, um, Great Gatsby was actually my 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 very first sort of major, I would say, studio picture. So my my goal when I started was that I I really wanted to work on what I would call a Hollywood film and. Uh, Gatsby was being filmed in Australia, but it was being funded by Warner Brothers. I was a, a VFX assistant editor on that uh, on that particular film, and it, it was—I have to admit—I found it a huge, huge learning experience, as you can imagine. Sort of coming in, not really knowing, knowing enough, but really not knowing. Sometimes it's a whole different world. It's right? a whole different world. It's <laughs> like uh, you don't know enough to know. That you don't know <laughs> until you encounter it. Um, ah, but yeah, it was I know, good. I know how that it, it was. Like, yeah. It was good, and um, in terms of uh, the working hours, it was pretty brutal. You know, we've we've chatted before about working hours. Um, so the contract we were contracted to sixty hour weeks minimum. So every it would be eight to eight thirty every day, Monday to Friday, um, and it never it, it would never uh, was. Um, uh, it would always run longer and stuff. And I was on, I was lucky enough to be on from the first day of shoot uh, to the very end. So that, that, and that was a hugely, really rewarding experience. I, I firmly believe that that sort of set me up uh, in terms of uh, knowledge and experience that has carried me through to where I am today. It was good. And then I met some wonderful people, um, the editors and the editorial team. We worked um, during shoot, we were based at Fox Studios um, it was a real thrill for me because uh, I think it was about 2011 they were shooting. I reversed time a little bit and I'm watching Romeo and Juliet in my home country. Fast forward and I'm on set watching Baz and Leo converse and talk and, and Baz directing him. And I'm, and I'm, it's, a little, it's, a, it's a pinch me moment, you know, yeah, where yeah, you're just yeah. like, oh, wow, how did I end up here? And um uh, but to be honest, I was actually the most excited was I, I saw Amitabh Bachchan sitting in the chair. I wanted to be like that kid on um, Slumdog Millionaires. Amitabh Bachchan! I really wanted to go <laughs> say hello, but I, I didn't dare. It was my first big job. I didn't want to get fired or I didn't know how that kind of stuff worked. It was very um, tough in terms of the working hours and making things happen, but it was also very re- rewarding. Um, we then moved post. We were working in a building that Baz owned, which was right next to his house. Um, so he would sort of like come down and sort of walk through the secret door. Oh, secret door is just a door in the fence. And sometimes, in sometimes yeah, yeah, it was all, all in Sydney. And then, you know, sometimes he'd, um, we'd all be working hard. So we'd put on some drinks at his house on a Friday night and stuff and converse. It, it was, it was really, it, it was really cool in that sense that, uh, he is a, a bit of a legend of the Australian film industry and, you know, sort of worldwide with what he's achieved. So to be able to sort of work and see that kind of process up front was really good. Baz was actually very generous in terms of uh, opening up uh, certain scenes or, or cuts 
to post-discussion with people. We'd have screenings downstairs. We had a projector sort of uh, room set up downstairs, um, which could handle sort of like 3D. Sometimes for milestone cuts, we'd have a screening just before like we were to present as the studio and stuff. And uh, he, he was very open in terms of hearing things from the team, which was really lovely. And I think, you know, the, the editors did such a really good job in being able to uh, sort of realise what his sort of like vision. It was a very, very interesting time to see that up close, to, to really see it go through and even meet like sort of like studio execs, you know, they would come down as well and get a feeling of how the system works. And this was all in his house? It was all next door. It was all next door to his house. If you want a barometer of your cool, Daniel, if you really need a barometer of your cool, uncle, you just show up at Bass Lemon's house since you know where he lives <laughs> and you go, yo, Bass, EJ. And, and then, then you see if he opens his door for you and go like, yo, Daniel. And he's, going he's, there moved, for he's, he's moved now. He's moved now. It must be a bit strange to be like, you know, I'm working next door, uh, like in the building that my boss was at. It's like a prison. I can't leave, <laughs> <eat>, right? <laughs> yeah, it was, it's like, I, I better not like, I, I better not leave. He's just he's right, right there. He's you know, right like, next door. Like, he might pop <laughs> down yeah. anytime. But, um, yeah, I look back on that time fondly, uh, but um, the, the reality of the hours as well is that it, it can be, uh, you have to be kind of prepared for that. And I remember, you know, Sean, you've said before, like, of course, we've all done very long shifts. Uh, everybody's done it, but I liken it um, very much to the put your arm in the air test. If I ask you to put your arm in the air, hey, no problem. Okay, hold it there for a week and see how you feel after that. So you have to be very, very um careful and i think it's not that just just that production but any production really that you take the time to look after yourself and this is this is kind of uh, a feeling that i've uh, sort of been moving towards and, and feel more stronger as i sort of make my way uh through jobs in that we have to be very careful as individuals to make sure that we have a balance particularly I, i'm a father now i have young kids I want to be able to see them. I want to be yeah, able to pursue right. my hobbies, you know. So um, I'm just wondering, you know, for you as a personal preference, is there a difference or would you prefer one over the other, you know, the smaller projects? That's a good uh, question. That's yeah. a good question. Or the question. bigger one, you know, there's the yeah, glamour. Yeah, that's the, yeah. Yeah. Um, the system is actually, different if, as well, if, if, you know. You know and, and if you look at your body of work, what I've noticed is that you've gone from like Interceptor, which is on Netflix now, you went from Mortal Kombat, to you know Peter Peter Rabbit mm. it's completely diverse yes, genres yeah, as well. Some, so, in, in, it's like I went from RA <laughs> and fatality to oh they're little rabbits. I know it's it's, <laughs> it's quite odd. Like I made the joke before that, oh my gosh, I've never worked on a show where the CG creatures are talking to you. They normally just try to kill you or rip your head off. Um, <laughs> <laughs> now they're actually conversing and saying funny things. Um yeah it's it's good. I, I think I think generally in Australia, I've been lucky enough to be able to uh, be offered interesting projects. and also, But also the reality is that, yes, there is stuff coming through, but also sometimes there may not be stuff coming through. And if you are freelancing, that's a very important thing. Where do you balance, say, your financial responsibilities uh, to yourself and your family versus what you might feel to be... Uh, you know, artistic integrity, etc. There is a very practical aspect to it as well. Um, like, for, like uh, I went from doing the action film of Interceptor, and now I'm working on uh, a, a very nice um, television show for Amazon um, 
really enjoying and it's just it's a different pace and I think in that sense I always try to look for something in every job that one I enjoy two I learn I've got to learn something on every show otherwise I don't want to be feeling like I'm doing the same thing and essentially you do you are hired to to do a role but there's always something in order to be sort of fulfilled with that it's I think it's important again attitude on how you look at something like I think it's really important that I described to you about say um, as an assistant editor doing rushes now and this is what I say to people some people will look at that role as just putting sound to vision and that's all it will ever be for them the the, the practical mechanical thing of putting sound to the clap moving on but for me I'm interested in seeing how the building blocks are formed. And I'm in a very privileged position to see, one, we read the script, two, we get to see the director's vision and the DOP sort of visually um, sort of interpret those words off the script. We then get to see the editor put it together. So you're not, if you want to look at it as just syncing sound to vision, fine, that's all you'll get out of it. But if you want to look at it from a different attitude, you can get so much more out of it. And it's really important. And that and that's in every job. It doesn't have to be film industry. If you really want to get f- fulfillment out of your job, then either get something that really appeals to you or try reworking your perspective a little bit. How much of what you just said is sort of like stems from your background doing high-profile uh, Australian television? I think Underbelly comes to mind. Right? It's a very, very successful franchise, many, many seasons. Actually, from my, my very first job in the Australian film industry, um, was on a uh, television show called McLeod's Daughters, and that's when I fell in love with just seeing the, the building blocks. It was some time ago. Yeah, it was actually a bit of trivia. It was the last Australian show to be fully shot on film. It was shot on 16mm film. So that was very interesting because a lot of people these days would never have the chance to touch actual celluloid. Um, it's all digital. Um, and that's when I really fell in love with it, um, Underbelly, Every, every, actually, every job has had a little bit of a uh, special thing. Underbelly was also uh, special to me in the sense that it, it was a very popular franchise at the time. Uh, I was able to um, meet some really nice people on it. And I think you'll notice, like, I keep coming back to say that one of the highlights are the people. And it really is in uh, Sydney, at, at least, like, there's a, there's a small but not small post community. And I, I feel like there are some real gems of people that you really want to keep coming back to work with funnily enough on this particular show i'm working on now is the first time that i've worked with uh one of the editors since underbelly and and even though we're by remote because we're all sort of online and stuff but it was a thrill just to be able to sort of like be on a project with her again because i i have so much respect um She's she's really good. Actually, one of the directors has done some work in in Singapore. Tony Tills. I met Tony on the Underbelly series and stuff. At the time, we had a post supervisor that would bring in a round table. And one of the lovely things about it that as the post crew, uh, we'd all get lunches and we'd all eat together. And those were the times where, like, I have Tony next to me. I could ask him questions about directing. It's such a lovely informal way to learn about storytelling. Um, once again, framing your job in a different perspective, I'm able to learn about st- storytelling. It's like getting paid to go to film school, but you're actually making the stuff, which sounds a bit of the 
you know, learning on the job, but at the same time, like it's it's really great education. Yeah, but I think I like the attitude of the the attitude of always learning on the job. Like you're never at the peak. You are always learning something new, no matter which project you're on, no matter how many times you've done a certain task before. Right? There's always something Ab- absolutely to be learned from it. There's the mechanical side of it where the technology is always improving. So you have to keep up by default. The other side, say the artistic side, which you know I have a lot of affection for, is being able to talk to different directors and editors about how they've interpreted. Like, for example, not just putting the building blocks together, but obviously they go through many iterations and the story gets discussed. And I'm, in the, I'm literally in the front seat being able to talk to these very experienced people and say, hey, why did, why, why did you remove that? Why, why did that? And they're going, well, you know, we'd already covered that emotional point with this scene before, um, so we decided to remove it. So you actually get to hone your storytelling skills or, or gain an insight into it, which is really lovely. And also I've talked to mosquitoes. I've talked to uh, directors, but how, how do you block a scene? Like I've always been very curious, like where do you start? Um, and I'm able to do that on the job, which is great. Is there some kind of um, formula or, or template you feel uh, you've, you've noticed after having done a heap of episodic television? <laughs> I think when it, it, it depends on the television. I think if you're doing something like a soap opera, there, there's definitely, it's, it's kind of, it's because it's shooting on a soap, it's very fast paced. So, you know, like you, you, you probably see you'd rock, the directors maybe will rock off a wide cross, cross shoot. Um, for those who don't cross shoot, it's like having two cameras so you're able to sort of like get both actors' coverage at the same time, um, uh, be it in studio or on location. But in terms of the editing, I, I, don't, I, I don't believe that there is a formula. I think most editors will tell you that, um, you know, what you're doing is trying to serve the story as to serve the what you might call as the the aesthetic or the, or the look first and foremost is serving the story and does the the story work and where is the directed attention meant to focus um as a lot of people will probably tell you like you you could have beautiful pictures um but if the the script is not good nothing is saving that but yet you you shoot something on a budget but the story is so good people are going to connect with that and it, there are lots of indie films that have come out of that where people just go, wow, look, you, you can do it, but you have to have a good story. And I think in that sense, first and foremost, an editor and director are always going to serve the story. Of course, I'm, ta- I'm, I'm talking maybe not from an experience point of view where I'm um, handling myself with a director, uh, but this is just something that I've observed in the cutting room. And on that note of editing, we can do that for you when you make cool content with us on the Uncool Podcast. That's right. Sponsorship and collaboration opportunities are available. So drop us an email at creativesatwork.asia to find out more. I know we're talking about between the practicality as well as um, what you have brought on a lot. It's really the passion and your attitude and your, your thirst to learn, right? But let me bring this back a little bit to that point when you were transitioning, right, from something entirely different to what you're doing right <laughs> yeah. now. I think, it's you tough. know, your passion, can I say it was a driving force at that point? Yeah, time? yeah, no, 100%. I, I think uh, I think it. nobody gets in the film industry for money, that's for sure. <laughs> there is. But how much of that, that, that those, those actions that you chose, right? I know you went back to, to Australia to study because of very practical reasons. But then when you came out to work, especially in the VXF 
uh, VFX, sorry, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> VFX um, industry, how much I, of I can't the, believe you said VFX. Oh my God. V, I think it's a VXF. <laughs> VFX industry, when you came out into that and that rush, that, that very uh, military style that you approached it, how much of it was driven by that passion? But how much was it was like, 100% driven by passion because I, I had given up, I had given up essentially, which was a whole different career. And that was a, a, a career in pathology. And uh, I, I remember a friend saying to me, like, why, why are you doing this? You, you have such a good job. Like, are you worried? And, I, and my answer was, look, I'm 28 at the time. Let's just say, uh, my attitude was, let's just say we retire at um, arbitrary figure 65. Are you trying to tell me that by giving this chance, pursuing this shot, I cannot get a job between the ages of, say, 28 and 65? That's statistically impossible. That doesn't even make sense. So when you reframe it and look at it from a different perspective, the difficulties don't seem as insurmountable as what society projects on you. And I, I think you can both, uh, a lot of Sing- Singaporeans probably come across this same type of attitude, which we had in my hometown, because I'm from a smaller place in Australia, where is the general life path, journey path that you go down is primary school, high school, university, get a job, get find a partner, get married, have 2.5 children, buy a couch and a dog. That's literally like what was drained almost by de facto sort of like you absorbed that. Um, and by following your passion, yes, um, yes, it's, it's, it's very important. I like to temper that with, you know, sort of a, a practical approach as well. So I had given myself a time frame. I said, listen, if it doesn't work, um, uh, I'll give myself three years. Uh, if it doesn't work, I'll apply for jobs in the hospital um, back in my home country and try to try to go on from there. But it was hundred percent. I was I was very very driven, very very driven because I, I was also older. I'm I'm literally competing against the, the new wave of of people coming out of film schools, um, and it's it's so common now. Um, so I really. Uh, had to get light a fire because it was like, if I didn't do it now, then when, when is it going to happen? And I don't particularly want to get to the, the end of my life and not have at least tried the things that I do, that I, that I want to do. You know, I'll be very, ha- I'll be very happy to try and, and, and fail rather than go, geez, geez, I wish. I mean, I, I just, for me personally, I, I find that really difficult but in a way you had less to lose than a young than the younger person right i mean in the sense that if it did work out for you there'll always be gonorrhea and bacteria <laughs> for you to study but the reverse the reverse the younger guy cannot do what you do the younger guy can't go and, and cook and you yeah. know, study all that bacteria that's so, true so, you know they're all there will always be bacteria even when you're 65 yeah. uh, they <laughs> might. True. True, yeah. but, but, but talking about your more um recent work uh, I'm just wondering because you've been you worked on your your very recent jobs like Interceptor, uh, Mortal Combat, and so on. Obviously, obviously, uh, well, Peter Rabbit too, of course. Obviously, very very different in terms of cuteness. They did cute in different ways. Um, but how does it feel to that you know you be you know you be spending twelve months or more 
uh, dealing with you know fatalities day in and day out? How does it affect your psyche? Oh, uh, yeah, no, it's 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 all pretty good. I I think when you approach everything like uh, the, the editors and directors are sort of work, working towards the best form of the material that they can present. So. Uh, even though the building blocks are still essentially the same, the, the rearrangement, the final arc, if you liken it to say like um, you have bricks, now out of those bricks you can build a house that looks a certain way or you can build a house that looks another way. And they're constantly trying to find what works best for that particular space or, or building blocks. So in that sense, it's, it's, still, it's always interesting. It's always interesting. Um, one of my favourite parts of all time is when you're working in VFX and the the, the shots start um, coming back just before final completion. It's magic. For example, on uh, you know Peter Rabbit, uh, we'd work. Uh, the editors would work with, um, or the editor would work with storyboards. So you would see something go from. Uh, the, they had a team that would sort of storyboard the action and positioning based on frames that were exported out of the Avid so that they could actually do it to frame. And then when they were imported into the Avid, they could be cut on, on top of the live action uh, to where the rabbit should be placed, etc. And then we would take that and we would send out reference and the materials. Um, and then you'd start to see these little grey rabbits come back, um, very odd, sort of like, you know, stand-in things and what have you. And then you see the expressions. And then when you see the final lighting and comp and and it's just, it's magical on any film, to be honest, in Mortal Kombat, when you see, you know, like a, a grayscale, um, uh, we had, there was one character called, Goro, I'm not sure if you're familiar. He's got four arms. So you kind of go from uh, <laughs> they literally had two stunt guys, one on top of each other, dressed in blue with, 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 <laughs> with a funny-looking blue hat and two eyes for the eye line, sort of going like this. So you have that in for ages and it just looks really strange. And then the grayscale comes in and then the textures come in. And it's just when you finally get it all put together, it's really a lovely moment. And you can't, it's the kind of moment where you, where you call the other guys around, hey, look, 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 look what they sent through. And I don't ever want to lose that excitement because I still love it. It's great. We, like the, um, the, there's a scene where this character called Natara, one of the bad guys, one of Chin Han's <laughs> posse, and she sort of flies down and uh, for those you that might not have seen the show, uh, she sort of dies a very violent death, and that that uh, was one that uh, was one of the more later shots to be completed. And then when we saw it come in, we were just like on the floor, like just it was it was cool. It was really really cool. Is that a lot of expectation? Because you know with franchise with a franchise filmmaking, right? And like in the case of Mortal Kombat, there's all this history, right? There's a video games, there's all these past films and all that. So how, how does all the expectation and for the other material as well, like affect the, all these building blocks that you're talking about? I think that's, um, that's an interesting question. I think uh, that's something that I'm not uh, sort of like involved with on the creative level. Um, it's more for the director and, and editors, uh, VFX supervisors, the people that help build the world um, in terms of the direction that they want to take it. It's interesting, though, you would think sometimes on, uh, say, a major film that a lot of it is thought out beforehand, which it is, um, but there also seems to be uh, an allowance during 
the the post-production period where there will be a lot of options and things tried um, to try and, again, get the best result or story elements introduced. Uh, there's also something which only really happens on, on say, sort of uh, bigger budget films is the audience testing. So there will be a period where um, there's literally, I think, this particular mall or something in, in the States where they people hang out and say, hey, you want to see a film? You want to see a film? And they sign an NDA, a disclosure, non-disclosure agreement, and they will go and that they, then they have to fill out the questionnaire. So sometimes uh, there will be a lot of movement in how the story is presented just based on uh, certain things. Did they, did they like this character? Did they not like this character? Was there anything confusing about it? And that's not normally an opportunity that's afforded, um, say, sort of like a, a lower budget um, production but it, it can be absolutely useful in terms of trying to move the final product towards something that is accessible to either a majority or confirm um uh what they were trying to go for in the first place more often than not sometimes on the visual effects editor you will join post um after shoot and then you kind of have to hit the ground running you're able to sort of like see things a little bit differently as well so it's 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 certainly really interesting. I love post. I love the um, sort of amalgamation of all things picture and sound, um, and also just um, one of the things, uh, sort of like sort of answering little mystery questions in my own, my own mind about um, uh, like what makes something good, like uh, score. When the score comes in, and the directors will be listening, and that you'll hear their comments, and you go, "Oh, I wonder why they feel that." Um, also another, another sort of like privilege I've had to do is uh, I've been able to do is ask editors about performance. Now, performance is interesting because everyone, um, has got a, a, an idea of whether or not like some actors performance I've really liked, but you know, there may have been some comments that sort of different to my opinion. So that's a really interesting thing. Try to try and get your barometer sort of like going against what you feel works or doesn't work. I remember on on one of the Underbelly series, I was able to sort of like call up my experience because the story happened was uh, the scripts were still being finalized as we were shooting. Um, it was and the art department had asked me, "Do you do you know any Asian teenagers? We need a, a picture of someone that we can just put on a police report." And I said, oh, "I just asked my brother to send me a picture," so he did, and then. <laughs> By the time the, we got round to filming the last episode, they had written the character in again. They were like, but the, we don't have anyone to play this. I said, well, the picture was my brother. I'll, I'll, why don't I just play it? It's just one line. And everyone's, <laughs> everyone agreed. Like, um, And that, that was when um, uh, Tony was working on that episode. He was very nice to me. Um, I went down and shot and uh, I'd finished and it was like, oh, you know, clap for Dan, which which. I thought it was really lovely, but I was able, I remember like I had one line. I'm like, how can I get the maximum edit time possible? So I split the line. I put a pause in the middle of it. I sort of delivered one back here and then I, I, I purposely leaned forward so the continuity wouldn't match so that they would have to come back to it at some stage. <laughs> um, yeah. But you went from like in front of the screen to behind the screen, right? And was that a conscious choice? Are you good? Oh, 100%. You in love with film, right? Knowing my limits is, is probably like, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not a very good actor. Um, although, I, look, don't get me wrong, I enjoyed it. I really loved it because just to be able to experience in that in my life it was, was a very lovely thing. But from an artistic 
standpoint in terms of where I wanted to go, I believe that when it comes to narrative and it comes to stories, the actor will act as a vessel. So what they display will be the story will flow through them and it will come out as emotion and delivery. Whereas if you are a director or an editor, you are able to be more like a conductor where you're where you're able to control the level of volume of, say, the violins on this section or, or the percussion section over here. So you, it's, it's more kind of like um, moulding. And I found that hugely appealing. And I really wanted to be a director and make films. I find that much more appealing than acting, even though like I, I, li- I liked it. It was fun. And I like sort of getting out of my own skin. Um, but that was what was appealing to me. So you're, you're obviously very, very passionate about editing, goes without saying. But so what, what excites you the most, though, of all the things that editors do? What excites you the most? The biggest thrill is always seeing what you end up with from what you had. And unfortunately for a lot of people, they don't get to experience that because I, I tell you, some editors and directors working together are absolutely magicians in terms of sort of like just honing that story and then that narrative in, into what you see. It's, it's almost like, you know, some, some of them are really, really, really good at their craft. Sort of like things that I, I like to see, I guess, sort of like a, na- a, a form of narrative that you may not have seen before or um, from maybe a visual point of view, maybe something where the angles are really different. You, you, know, you know it in your heart, I feel, unconsciously when you watch something and it works and you really like it. Now sort of working in the industry, I'm able to kind of uh, vocalise and or being able to sort of attribute certain things to, oh, I know why that works now. Um, so I think to me, like seeing something... Or, or just seeing something real sometimes. Some of my favorite, real favorite things are like indie stuff. Like I really love um, John Favreau's first film, Swingers. Like it's just a small, tiny film. Him and Vince Vaughn as um, in LA, sort of like based on his life. It's a really good film. And then I like um, seeing something like um, Iron Man or something. Well, John Favreau directed that and I really like him. Um, or... Also, I think film festivals are really important in the sense like foreign films because I might not necessarily, it's, it's going to sound a bit strange, but I may not necessarily like have enjoyed a particular film. I just went along to really see if I enjoyed it, it was a bonus. Uh, if not, then I was able to sort of see a different type of storytelling, if that makes sense. Like it's it's really interesting. I've seen a lot of sort of like foreign films like that. I think that's the exciting part about international film. Yeah, I absolutely. Suppose, right? I, I still yeah. I still try to do my best to keep track of what's happening in Singapore. Though uh, it's been a very long time since I've been back. Like I said, I still have a lot of affection. I think for the industry there, and I mean, it would literally be my dream to come back and and do something in Singapore sometime. You started out uh, working on a sixty millimeter film, and then of course you're moving on to. To digital and so on. Um, so on that note, then, how do you see the future of editing uh, changing over the next few years? I don't know about the next few years, but I think technology-wise, I feel I feel the cloud is approaching. I feel the cloud is there are certain systems out there now. Nothing obviously beats being in the room with someone. With COVID, sort of like showing us that we things are possible uh, by remote. I see that essentially editor could be in Los Angeles, the director is shooting, the rushes are coming back, 
um, you know, sort of like live or they're being processed and uploaded um, to the cloud. You're editing with like lower res stuff. It's a, the speeds are getting better. So that, that's where I sort of like see it happening. Um, you're essentially being able to open up the world at one time. Then it's just managing sort of time time frames like we had um on peter rabbit 2 the director was was in australia for a bit but he was also in uh had to go over to america for a little bit and he was able to sort of like do stuff from his home where we set up sort of like a camera and, and a feed straight out of the avid uh, avid being the editing software so basically out of the avid's computers and then you will just log into the app uh and watch it live so essentially and then have the camera and the feedback thing here so that um, essentially you're watching what the editor's doing and then the camera is like you're sitting in the room. So the importance of proximity, although it's very probably the first choice, may sort of like give way to a little bit more sort of like distance-based um, work, work collaborations. Yeah. I mean, like us, we used to do the podcast in the room as well. And now we're like, hi, Daniel, all the way from Australia. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is great. Like, it's fantastic. <laughs> and whatever you just described, it means that oh, the image we have of the editor and the directors with coffee and croissants like that. Well, now the coffee and croissants is your own. Yeah, own house. it's the best. It's always <laughs> it's the best. Not, yeah, it's not, it's not free from the studio oh, anymore. Whoops. I, <laughs> all this experience that you had. Going from uh, from bacteria uh, uh, study to you know going to TAFE and editing all this TV and uh, editing high profile feature films now. How has all this shaped your psychology towards life? Um, your personal life. A lot, a lot, a lot of it has come out of the process in terms of and it's, it's that's that's another actually really good question because I'm a huge huge advocate now of uh, trying to find a way to work smart within the hours allotted um, because, we're, because we're all human, you know, like this type of industry is very difficult on relationships. It's very, it's important to have a very good partner, an understanding partner. Like if you can imagine when I mentioned before, we're starting at eight in the morning and finishing at eight thirty at night. All your friends have literally finished in Australia, at least finished eating and have gone home. No one's going to want to meet up. Uh, yeah, I, I, yeah, I would Australia, um, yes. on, on the days where we went even later. Start at eight, and I'd walk back to my girlfriend's house at two in the morning, and then I'd get up and be at work by eight again because she happened to live nearby. I was too scared to um, to kind of ride because at that time you're actually in danger of. Um, uh, you know, having an accident because you're very tired. In terms of yeah, personal perspective, and also I'm a, I'm a little bit older now. I'm a father, so a lot of that plays on my mind a lot. I feel that um, I have to try and do my best to prioritize uh, my personal life. Although you know the the requests, albeit friendly, they will come in. Oh, can you can you stay late? Can you do this? Which is fine, and we've all done that. But it has to be tempered against making sure that you're taking care of yourself. And that even can be really something simple like make sure you eat. Make sure you don't eat at your desk. That was one of the first rules taught to me by when I first started on McLeod's Daughters by the assistant. He just goes, never, ever eat at your desk. Just even if you take it over there, just go over there and, and eat because you need to just have, have that mental separation. And it's very important. And also these days, which is really lovely, there's a lot of information and um, uh, things around mental health, and I think that's really important. So that that in myself, like um, 
you know, you don't, it's a high pressure industry. If you let it, you can be very anxious. I think, I think one of the best sort of uh, displays on screen that I've seen is that film, The Devil Wears Prada, where the character becomes so anxious and worked up over stuff, which in the world of Miranda Divine, was that the, the, the character was very important, but in the real world, which was her father and stuff coming to visit, it, it was he was looking at her like, going, are, are you crazy? Are you nuts? And she was saying things like, you don't understand. And and sometimes I feel like it, it can get like that. But, and that's where working with the right team and the right people is really important because they'll, they'll understand and they'll be able to support you through that. So in terms of philosophy, that's probably where I've developed now. When you're young, you just you do anything. You, you just absolutely do, yeah, yeah. just it's like, like I yes need to, attitude. I need to, yeah. Yes, yes, can, can, you know. It's also because you're freelance, especially when you're a freelancer, right? I think you, you want to do everything. As you mentioned, you don't know, I mean, you need to manage your, I mean, every job that you say cannot do is sort of financial that, exactly, implications that, too. That's, that sense. that's the thing, so, yeah. What, what is it like actually uh, to be a freelancer? It was actually a thing that, took me a little while to get used to because um, my nature is is a person that would like to know where your next paycheck is coming from. So there had to be a mental sort of like, um, uh, there, there had to be a mental kind of like line in the sand where you just go, okay, I now, if I want to make this a reality, I have to accept certain things. And then once you accept certain things, you feel a little bit more peaceful mentally in terms of, okay, I can move forward and then therefore I can implement things that are going to um, help me achieve my goals. Like um, saving for a rainy day has been always there from day one and that's just being disciplined with your money. That's um, sort of, uh, there's an attitude which I, I like to uh, call pay yourself. So when I first started, I was like, no matter what I do, I put this amount of money in an account, no matter what, and I'll make that every week. If I have stuff left over, great, I can do whatever I want. I can spend it on any frivolous thing, but I need to have that in the bank because the rainy days, when I first started, I, I didn't know how long they might last. Luckily, I've had constant work since maybe 2018, so I'm fortunate. Um, but before that, I was on a job where we literally were given a week's notice before the production went down. Something went awry and we were all working. We were really chugging along. It was really cool. And then it was like, mm, everyone, down tools. And then we came back and we got the news that we weren't moving forward. So there is, it's only happened once, but there is a chance that that will happen. So in terms of managing um, that on a personal level of anxiety and stuff, having the rainy day fun helps. And then freelancing in Sydney as well, it's a very interesting um, community because when I first got into the industry, uh, I answered an ad in like online or the paper maybe, um, which was for the McLeod's daughter's job. And ever since, and that was 2008. And ever since then, I've never answered a job since. It's always approaching people through email or I get or I get a call or I get an email. So being a freelancer, again, it comes back down to attitude as well. One guy told me on one job, which is very true, if you do a good job, people will hear about you. If you do a bad job, people will hear about you faster. 
So, yeah, you, <laughs> and if they don't, and they, if they don't hear about you, they're not going to no, give you the job anyway. No. So, yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. we're very lucky in the sense, like the small but not small community is very generous. It's not as cutthroat as it is in Los Angeles, where you're trying to really sort of like get the job over the other person. So I've heard. I, I can't really claim too much experience there, although I have. Uh, I went over for a little bit on one film, but um, here in Australia, we are very. I feel we're very supportive of each other. If I can't do a job, I, I send them the emails of my mates that I know can do it because at, at the end of the day, there will be enough work and I would like to think that they do this. Maybe they don't. Maybe I'm an idiot. <laughs> no, no one's recommending me to anyone. But I, I, think that they, I think that they are or will have phone calls with each other and just say, hey, did this come across your plate or, they're looking, or are you free? So a lot of, a lot of the, the work now for freelancers sort of, um, towards the end of a thing, it's like uh, you, I'm coming to an end of a job. I'll start putting out feelers. Does anyone know? People go, if I hear something, I'll, I'll throw your name. So we're constantly supporting each other in terms of like, hey, I'm, a, I'm not free, but this guy is good. Like, and it, it just kind of goes around. I don't want to think that we ever get into a situation where we're kind of like killing each other to try and get a job because yeah, it's a bit chewing at each yeah, other. Yeah, I, I don't yeah. I don't really like that that attitude. I don't feel that there's any real necessity in terms of you know creating a good community and cre- creating something uh, you, you don't want to um you don't want to mess with your in your own rice bowl, really. But then, but as you said, if you do something, if you do a bad job, people still yeah, hear about it. Faster. Faster, right? So you get a lot of anxiety, though, when you're if you're like, you know, my phone doesn't ring because you said you get a lot of jobs by phone ring the email, and if your phone doesn't ring for like three months, you're like, oh, what the heck? Yeah, I've, I've, I haven't had that situation for a while. Um, I've been very fortunate. I'll, I'll say that there is a level of anxiety, which I think, once again, I kind of mentioned that mental line in the sand where you just go, okay, I'm in. And so you are kind of being forewarned is forearmed against having that anxiety knocking at the door where you go, okay, I've accepted this. I have this much in the bank. Um, I, can, I can make it happen. Uh, th- there are other things. Like uh, I know you guys have sort of talked on other podcasts like about financial stuff and there is, a, there is a little difficult in terms of when we went for housing loan, you're dealing with banks and banks are traditionally not very good at looking between the lines. Like freelancers, we're in a gray area. So I'm trying to explain to them like, like oh, you know, no, 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 I work full time, but I work full time for the length of um, the television show or the film. And they're like, so you contract. I'm like, yes, I contract, but I don't contract as an independent contractor. You can, don't give me, you can actually do that in Australia, but I work full time. I get the benefits that are afforded uh, me through sort of like the, the general sort of like work agreements. I get paid my, um, uh, and we call it superannuation. You guys have CPF. So I would still get that. I would still get holiday pay, even though I can't take holidays. <laughs> so, um, oh, but not so bad. Gen- I think it's a lot more robust in the protection of freelancers over there in Australia. Though. It's a, it's a lot better in Australia than I, I don't know what the situation is like in Singapore, but when I was there, it's getting better. I, 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 getting I felt, better. I felt it, it's, um, it, it's very difficult in Singapore. Like, there's a lot more protections. Well, what, whatever you describe, it's quite similar in a sense. I mean, I still have people who don't who think I'm unemployed, and they're like, "Oh, yeah, so for 15 years." And literally, like, you know, when they do all these things, they're saying like the bank forms, and they'll look at you and be like, "So, 
what exactly are you like an odd job labor just give give me the whatever. money <laughs> just, okay. yeah. i'll be whatever you know yeah it's and it's that's that's quite but difficult I, I, uh, I had that. I, I had someone call me once as a census. This is because, you know, the schools like to do that. And they're like, they want to find out what their graduates are doing, right? And so when I told them what I did, and the guy didn't know what to do at all, the person on the phone, she's like, um, so are you unemployed? I'm like, not exactly, no. Uh, so what, are you like an entrepreneur? I'm like, um, okay, if, you, if, if that makes yeah. you happy. And then <laughs> she literally said, okay. This, and this is one of the things I, I, I found that I, I, I struggled with in Singapore. Not that we don't have it in Australia. We have that attitude too. But it's the attitude of... Oh, it doesn't fit into my box. How do I make sense of this? And I, 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 I find that attitude really difficult. On, on a, if I can sort of like go off, off topic for a bit. My parents, my, my mum's a Eurasian from Malaysia. My father's Vietnamese. Um, and when I went to Singapore, I felt that I would be sort of like, like a bit of a homecoming. I'd be amongst brothers and sisters, solidarity. But when I got to Singapore, on occasion, I would be met. I, I would be the Angmo, I'd be the Matsale, the Orangpute, the, the Laowai, the Guailo, whatever, you know, like I had it all thrown in my face. And it was very difficult for me oh, because dear. once again, if you don't fit into a particular box, people are more happy to sort of tell you where they feel you should fit. So you have to have a very strong sense for me, culturally, of how I see myself. But to bring it back to where we're going in terms of profession and stuff, Trying to smile and educate people as to to what you do because it's very difficult for some people to to kind of figure out who you are. It makes sense, and if you look at and if you list, if you're listening to us on Spotify now and not on YouTube, you're probably imagining Daniel to look a certain way, right, with this accent. But when he turns on YouTube, I'm telling you, he looks completely <laughs> unexpected. <laughs> what do you think? I used to have longer hair, working in the lab and i think people would really had a lot of trouble going like hey wow this guy's like uh, he's got a degree he went to school he's not playing in a band or <laughs> you know you know you know what i mean like they'd see me turn up to work and just it's woo and completely daniel is not white as yeah. much as his accent may, may be suggested so so daniel on that note as well since you talk about the lab and all that what advice do you have for people uh who are listening in uh, who might be looking to switch careers and maybe not as dramatic as the way that you did it, but, you know, when you're looking to switch careers, what advice do you have I for I think that? when it comes to switching careers, that, that's, a re- that's, that's a good question. That's, that's a tough one. Commit. You're either going to do it or you're not. So don't, don't, half, don't half past six it. You, you know, like you, you, you do it, you're going to do it for real. If you want to get practical about it, then set yourself some boundaries. That's fine. When you think about it, try to make sure that you're you're framing your situation in different lenses. Like I said, like um, it became a lot less scary when I looked at it in the sense that don't tell me I can't get a job between the ages of 28 and 65. Like, come on. Like, even if I went to this and completely and utterly bombed out, I can still do something. Like, that's like it's not like I, I take this chance and it's um, mess with me and my life is over, which I think is a, is a very common thing amongst um, all countries and all cultures, particularly when it comes to something like I screw up in high school. You know what I mean? Like that's it for me. And personally, I mean, I did screw up in high school. I had some on a personal level. I had some issues at home. It was very difficult for me. And I didn't explode until I got to uni. First year of uni, boom, through the roof. And it took me that long. So I don't really like this attitude when people think that they label you 
from what they sort of see you as down the line when your life is a very, very long journey. So I say to those people, if you want to change careers, just change. Just just do it. I'm, I'm still, even, even now, like I entertain thoughts about like I want to do something, I want to spend more time with the kids. Why not? you got one life. You only got to make yourself happy. Yeah. Since we're talking about uncool and cool, when do you think you were the most uncool and what do you think you would say to him if you had a chance now? <laughs> I, don't, I don't think, well, to be honest, I don't think I've ever been cool. But if I look, were to look back at myself, I'd just say, oh, gosh, what would I say? I'd say, um, don't worry about what other people think. You find that you really, you really only have, it's your life. It's your life. Why, why, why live it for other people? You got to live it for yourself. That's really important. Like we, we, we are all from Asian backgrounds, and we all—I'm sure—the generation above us have relatives who have um, sort of uh, suffered for the sake of formality. <laughs> you know, we're lucky. We're privileged. What would you say as well to those who maybe want to give Sydney a go? Uh, in terms of coming from Singapore to Sydney, I think that's a, that's a, that's a tough one. In terms, of, if we're talking film industry, uh, Australia is notoriously difficult. It is very, very, and this is from having a lot of overseas friends, and um, as as you as you know from from being over here as well, like it, it's difficult. So the first thing is, if you wanted to come and work in the industry, you would have to uh, find a sponsor. Now that's going to be really tough because you're competing against locals. And this was the advice given to me. Was someone when I first came to Sydney, if you really want to do it and you find that Sydney or Australia in general is the place that you want to do, find a way to come and then stay in the game from there. So uh, the advice that was given to me by this casting guy when I first came to Sydney was we see a lot of people sort of come and then sort of like drop off the radar. So find a job, if not close to the industry, and then indulge in the passions that you want to do until you're able to sort of like make that move or, or what, what have you. I think it's really tough though, I'll be honest, in terms of being able to come to Australia from Singapore to do specifically for that job. Like it can be done, but um, if you make contacts and, you know, like approach people, there are, there are always ways. And it's great that Holly, in, a, in a way, Hollywood came to you. You didn't have to go to Hollywood. I, we're, I very mean, lucky, being, we're very lucky are. in that sense in Australia that um, – Traditionally, I think a lot of Australian directors are extremely patriotic enough to want to bring a certain uh, part of work back to Australia. Back so to they'll home, shoot, right? the, yeah. yeah, they'll shoot overseas, but yet the post is done in Australia. Uh, yeah, and you'd be surprised on on just what kind of uh, stuff is done here. You'll think it's very international, but it's really like you know, all Mortal Kombat was shot in South Australia. Like it's all, it had all the locations there that was needed. So, you know, we're, we're very lucky in, in that sense. Even like I think um, 13 Lives, the Ron Howard film on Amazon at the moment, like the majority of that was shot on the Gold Coast in Australia. So, Daniel, uh, before we let you go then, what's next for you? What's up for you in, uh, um, now? And what's next well, for you? Generally, I will say, but generally I don't like to say because it's just that nature of the freelancing, like uh, – until you are, until you get your first paycheck and you're working on the job, then you can say, "Okay, I'm working on the job," because because things things can change so fast, you know. Yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, oh yes. I until I until my get the first day of shoot, nothing's for on, me, and the camera starts. <laughs> on, then I know, yes, it's on. Because any time between then, nine, then and now, things can happen. I'm like, oh, I changed my exactly, mind. Exactly, one hundred. So that's why. Oh, so so, so, so forth, and then like, oh. So I so, but I will say is so the plan. 
is that I will be joining the Furiosa team. It's a Mad Max spin-off at the moment. They're filming in Australia. So I'll be, yeah, so that they um, when they finish shooting, I'll be hopefully, hopefully the plan is to join the team and continue on from there. So that, that will be, that will be plus, plus as well, it's George Miller. Uh, he's amazing. He's a doctor. He went from medical profession to making films. Um, oh, he should be the next one yeah, we're talking to. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so getting cooler and cooler, huh? I mean, if I'm Interceptor and now you're doing Mad Max, it's just, yeah, it's just getting so that's, cool. Um, that, that'll, be, that'll be an experience and that's one where um, I'm looking forward to sort of like just looking into that world because I really respect, you know, like what George Miller has done and the team behind him. As, as well like i said i don't normally fingers talk crossed. about fi- yes fingers crossed because uh you know like i've had jobs fall through in the past like i said until you until you're sitting at the desk getting the first paycheck or, or even signed a contract well that, again that's the nature of, sorry i should probably bring that back round to the nature of freelancing is that a lot of it is verbal a lot of it is verbal until you start on the first day and then you sign something um so in that sense I don't like to count my chickens before they're hatched. So hopefully the plan is to be able to start. Hopefully I'm able to. And if I do, I'm looking forward to sort of seeing the team because I, I know the team from other jobs and stuff and they're, they're a very nice bunch of people. So I, it's really, really, I'd love to, the material will be great, but also, like I said, it has to be tempered against working with some really lovely people. No matter what the job is, right? Yeah, it just, doesn't I matter. I want to work with you. I want to work with you. If they ask yeah. me, I will just say yes. I don't even have to ask what kind of job it is. So if if our listeners want to, you know, catch up with you and what you're working on, what are your socials? How can they find you? Oh, gosh. I don't No, I'm really not cool enough to have socials. I, I have like an Instagram only because my cousin, I told her, I said, I don't have Instagram. She looked at me like I was like like some kind of alien. Like you don't have Instagram. I'm like, no, I don't. So I, I got it. So I, I have an Instagram which I believe is at Cheese Prata. <laughs> oh my god! Really? I, <laughs> oh, I, I don't do a lot. I literally like it's open to people to see, but I literally only I don't put stuff of myself. It's just interesting things that I see around and that happen to catch my happened to catch my eye i'll that, put it up that there, social you know. media that social media yeah. <laughs> i know I, I, i'm i'm just wondering right do people like tag like you when they eat cheese butter <laughs> because they think theory. that you think it's like off the show like hey i'm sitting here just cheese butter slice and then they tag cheese butter i, haven't, you. I haven't had that i wish you would because i then at least i would see more pictures i'm oh i love cheese butter cheese <laughs> okay, butter I, is, I is like <laughs> it is the food of the gods i think i love it my favorite and it has to be a good uh like Ikan curry, you know. It, oh, oh, yes. Oh, oh I haven't had mutton curry for a long time. Now we're talking about food. My goodness, I can go all day. I can go all day. I, I, I sense a career change. I sense a career change coming on. <laughs> Ikan I mean, did you know that they opened like a hawker hawker center in New York or something? Like, yeah, in the yeah, last, yeah. Like, in the last really? Month. Yeah, like Singapore, yeah. like. They oh, open. They they went over to open like a kopitam in New York in Manhattan. Manhattan. So now you apparently can, and people are quite are going nuts about it. They are, they are like very happy. They are completely happy <laughs> to spend like twenty bucks or twenty five <laughs> bucks like 
on, on, oh, on, yeah, on for example, we, we, we have we have a shop here. If I if I if I say eight dollar prata, you would just fall off your chair. I can believe it though because I probably had some of that. But but they don't have cheese no, they butter. Don't. They don't in Sydney. And trust me, I've so looked, that's an idea. Me. Like I, yeah, I really look. <laughs> like I, I'm Wait, at all the it, shops. I'm trying to find you know where where to eat the best prata in Sydney. Oh. This is like the first person advantage now, right? And so the, the Australian listeners to this will be like, what the heck is cheese butter? The Singapore guys are all getting ideas now. Like, oh yeah, hey, maybe, maybe, we, should, maybe we should explain. Like, the the prata, parata is, you know, like the, the fried kind of like um, uh, bread, Indian sort of style um, cooked over a hot plate. And you can eat with egg, you have roti telo, you get to have um, yeah, cheese, with, with cheese in the middle. And wow, the cheese... Like it, it's already probably not the most healthiest thing on the planet, but the oh, cheese it makes it. Yeah, but it tastes good. It tastes good. Yeah. <laughs> At that stage, you're not thinking and, about health. And, health it gets more <laughs> and it gets so complex. I'm like looking. Sometimes I look at the, the other day. I, was, I mean, okay, not the other day, but when I look at like tissue prata, for example, I keep thinking like, how did they get that thing to like stand it's up there, art, like man. this it's thing? And then it is, it is, it is. It you is. know, I, I tell agree, you what, yeah. though, it's it's funny you're talking about like that it does so well in New York, I'm telling like, hey man, if you have a Tetarik compared to like uh, American coffee, of course they're going crazy because they're drinking like, I'm sorry, I don't have a high opinion of American coffee. But um, yeah, but you have a Tetarik, you would just be like, oh yeah. Oh yeah, that's worth yeah, it, man. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. You know, it, don't, anyway, no Australian in the right mind will have a high high opinion of, of American no. coffee. No, <laughs> definitely not. It's too <laughs> good in Australia. Way yeah. too good here. Yeah. 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 So that's the advice to you know, if people want to go give Sydney a go, don't do film. Just just <laughs> take <and cheese>, <laughs> Just go for yeah, cheese prata. And for those of you listening in, do remember to click follow on our podcast. Drop us a like and a five-star rating because it really does help us create great content for you. And tell your friends about us because it's cool to be uncool. And with that, we've come to the end of the fourth edition of Uncool. And we would like to say a big thank you to all our listeners over all these episodes. We'll be taking a little break and we hope to drop a new edition soon. If you have any stories that you want to share or even stories that you want to share for yourself on the show, then reach out to us at contact at creatorsatwork.asia and we will do the rest. Also, remember to drop us a comment, like or subscribe to our channel as every little show of support helps. Until then, Merry Christmas! Happy holidays and best wishes for the new year. We wish you and your families health, happiness, peace and love. And we're looking forward so much to seeing you again soon with stories about how it's cool to be uncool. Like this show? Then rate it 5 stars and subscribe to us on YouTube, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Uncool is a podcast by creatives at work. It is produced, written and hosted by Sean Lee Wen-Chong and co-hosted by Yen Ling Lo, co-produced by Raven Lim and edited by Ray Ng. Uncool. It's cool to be uncool.